Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen, and I'm the pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington, and we are glad that you are here. This morning is, I don't know what number, in our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible, and we'll be looking at Luke chapter 15 in just a minute. Before that, I thought we would pray and we would confess our sins, and then afterward, I will actually read the story to us. So, if you would like to follow along with today's confession of sin, you can find it in the description below. So let us pray. Gracious Father, as you have promised, give us your goodness in place of our wickedness. Silence all cruel slanderers and accusers, those who magnify our faults and the devil. Do so now and whenever our consciences are worried. Judge us not by the evidence of the devil and by our own depressed consciences. Take from our souls the heavy burden of all our sins, so that with clear, joyful, and sincere consciences, we may endure and do all things and live and die fully confident of your mercy. Amen and amen. Well, at this point in the service at church, uh, which we are meeting in person now, we'd love to have you here. Um, at this point, I would say, to please take a moment to confess your sins silently. And then afterward, I would say something like this. I would say, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, it is my privilege as a minister of the gospel to say to you, know that your sins are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. So this morning, we are looking at a parable, but it's really a parable that is in three parts. And before I begin... Why don't I read to you um, the first part, and it'll sort of get us rolling. So on chapter 15 of Luke is what we're looking at today. And so hear the word of God. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently seek until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So let me start this morning with a question I often do. Um, and the question I'm going to start with is this. Um, do you consider yourself to be a rule keeper or a rule breaker? Or maybe a better way to put that is all of our personalities are different. Does your personality one that is inclined to be a rule keeper or is it one that is inclined to be a rule breaker? All of us are somewhere on that continuum. And what I think COVID has shown us is the extremes of these, right? So in COVID, you have people who are rule keepers in the extreme. I mean, they're so zealous 
about um, following regulations that are put out by the government and masks and whatever Dr. Fauci says on Tuesday and then whatever he says contradictorily on Thursday. If he said it, you follow it. And it's become so, so ingrained and they're so into following the rules that they actually have almost formed a community and, and they, they get it like some sense of, of belonging by being people who follow the rules and they will let you know if they think you are not following the rules. That's one end of the continuum. On the other end of the continuum are, are rule breakers who say, I ain't wearing no mask. I ain't doing what Fauci tells me to do. He said this and then he said that. I, I don't trust any of them, right? This is America. They ain't the boss of me, right? I do what I want to do. And so those people do what they want to do. They're at either ends of the continuum. Most people, I would imagine, are like me. And the people like me are basically COVID Pharisees. At least a good number of people are like me. And they're COVID Pharisees. What do I mean by they're COVID Pharisees? Well, what is a COVID Pharisee? A COVID Pharisee is someone who follows the letter of the law on the outside and seethes and loathes and rails against it on the inside. Outwardly, mask. Smile, can't tell because it's covered. Inwardly, boiling. And not only that, but you begin to like actually despise the person or people who put out those rules, even though you're following them. Now, don't write me emails. I know I'm already expecting them. Just but every time I open my mouth and say COVID, I get emails. Don't write one. Because I know that some people you're writing, you, you wear a mask, you don't like it, and you can't wait till it's over and you want to get a vaccine. I, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. What makes me a Pharisee is outward conformity to the law, but an inward hatred of it. You see, that's the definition of a Pharisee. If you look at the New Testament, Jesus dealt with this group of religious leaders called Pharisees. And what Pharisees were good at not all of them, but many of them were good at was following the rules on the outside while inwardly they disliked the rules or inwardly they twisted the rules or inwardly they actually hated the one who gave the rules, God himself. Today's parable that Jesus tells us about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the two brothers is given for those people specifically. People who outwardly follow the rules and inwardly hate the rules. You see that what the, the problem with that? And so today, basically, as we look at this parable, as I told you, it has three parts. We're going to really spend most of our time on the story of, that it, with which it culminates is the story of the brothers. And it really, we always call this story the parable of the prodigal son, when in fact, you know, Tim Keller would make the case that really it's the father who's prodigal here. If you define prodigal as extravagantly spending, the father does that. Um, I'm going to refer to the prodigal as the prodigal, and I'm going to refer to the prodigal as Eugene. And I'm going to refer to his older brother as Claude, just because it's easier to attach a name to him than to keep saying prodigal, elder brother, part. Let's just personalize it. It's about two sons. Both of them, by the way, are completely and utterly lost. It's not a bad son and a good son. There are two lost sons who both experience the sacrificial, humiliating love of the father. And when I say humiliating, I mean the father's humiliation, not theirs. Maybe I should say restorative love of the father. And the question is, what will they do with that? Will they embrace it or will they turn away from it? 
You see, let's look at a little context here. Remember, I read the first three verses already. The, the context here is that Jesus is becoming more and more famous, but he's becoming famous in, in all the wrong ways, at least if you're a religious leader in Israel. Notice it says in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Okay, so, so tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear them. And Jesus is giving them attention where the religious people that should be getting the attention are not getting it. And so verse 2, it says, And Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, it'd be one thing for him to receive sinners and say, okay, y'all can stand around in a circle, or you can sit on the grass or sit in the dirt and listen to me teach. It's another thing for Jesus to receive them. That means to bring them into his home or wherever he was staying, of course, and he hosts meals for them. You only did that with honored guests or close family, but certainly not with well-known sinners and tax collectors. Jesus was doing that and they grumbled at him, and they grumbled about it, right? They complained about it. You know you're a Pharisee if you complain about other people receiving grace, because you worked hard for it. Now, verse 3, it says, so the Pharisees grumbled with him about him. In verse 3, it says, so he told them this parable. I always thought that that line is interesting because it doesn't say, so he told them a parable. Every other place that I can remember, it says he told them a parable. Here's what the kingdom is like, a parable. Here's what this is like, a parable. But the Pharisees, people who are outwardly conforming to the law, but inwardly hate it, people who outwardly act like they love God, but inwardly hate him and complain about other people being shown grace. It says, Jesus heard them grumbling and told them this parable, this particular parable, which tells us that it is geared particularly, specifically, for those of us who struggle with being Pharisees. Now, even if, if you hate Pharisees, that makes you a Pharisee, right? So you, you sort of can't escape it. But uh, so we'll look at that. We're gonna look at three things this morning. Basically, we're gonna look at God's joy. We're gonna look at hope for the prodigal and hope for the Pharisee. Because remember, I told you they were both lost. Um, so when I talk about God's joy, what do I mean? So Jesus tells him this parable, and he tells him three, three stories that are part of one big parable. And the first one is about this sheep, right? A farmer, a shepherd had 900 sheep. One of them got lost. He went out and found it. And Jesus basically says, what is the result of that? It says, he finds it. When he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, this is a big, hefty, nasty, I assume, sheep. And he got it on his back. He has to smell it. And yet he rejoices because he found this dirty sheep. And he comes back. And when he comes back, he has a party. He calls all his friends. He calls his neighbors. Come rejoice with me for my sheep. I have found my sheep that was lost. And in verse 7 is the key. It says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, if you think about it, if you're the Pharisees standing there, how are you supposed to take that? Right? On one hand, you could say, well, he's implying that they're not that most people don't need repentance like that. On the other hand, he's saying that is what gives God joy. And I think what the backhanded point here is is n number 1 is there's no one who doesn't need repentance and that God is not impressed with their 
righteousness. He's not impressed with their goodness. In other words, 99 people who are good versus God, the one who repents, who, who understands the state of his or her sin and turns back, gives God more joy than all of the goodness of all of the rest of the people. He's not impressed with your goodness. He is impressed with the fact that you were willing to be found. In fact, in this parable, Jesus in some ways redefines repentance, not as being good or not as even turning back to God, but very passively allowing yourself to be found, right? So the sheep is found and that is what makes God rejoice. And notice about the, the coin, the coin isn't even alive. The coin is passive. So the coin can never find itself. It can never dig itself out of a ditch. He says, verse eight, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, what does she do? Calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that may be better translated, there's joy in the presence of the angels. In other words, the, the joy that is being experienced in heaven, I mean, I assume the angels are, are happy about it, but the joy that is being experienced in heaven is the joy of God himself, that God rejoices over the one who is lost but is found, right? That, that God has tied himself to us. He, it, he has tied his joy, his happiness is somehow tied to us mysteriously. And notice if the Pharisees really understood what Jesus was saying they, at this point, if they understood it, um, that what causes joy was finding that which is lost. And if they connected the dots that all these tax collectors and sinners are lost, instead of condemning Jesus, they would have encouraged him. And, and instead of plotting to kill Jesus, they would have joined him. And some did, but they didn't get it. So what does Jesus do? He continues the parable with the story of two brothers. And I'm going to read this to you in, in portions. Um, so the, the first part we'll look at is hope for the prodigal. Notice verse 11, it says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that it is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the what we see here in some ways with Eugene, the younger brother, is, is a death wish, right? In, in the ancient Near East, what we're going to see with the, with the younger brother, the older brother, and the father is every single one of them defy every single expectation that Middle Eastern culture would have had on them. So Eugene being the younger brother, which means he's, does, he's not entitled to most of the inheritance. In fact, the, the law says as the younger brother, he's only entitled to a third of anything the father has when he dies. 
and everything else goes to the older brother. And people would have been horrified to hear that this younger brother went to the father and asked for his portion of the inheritance now while the father was still alive. In some ways, what he's saying with that statement is, I wish you were dead. And in some ways, he's saying, I am dead to this family. In, in other words, he's cuts himself off from his responsibilities. He cuts himself off from the rest of the family. He cuts himself off from the village. We'll see that's important in a moment. And it's just interesting. He, he could have stayed with the father and just been a steward of, of his third. He, in other words, he didn't have to leave to experience the, the benefit of having all that money. And yet he says, give me my money. I want to get out of here. Now, if you think about it and what we see of the father, do you think it's because that he wants to leave because the father is such a jerk? I don't think so. Perhaps it's the big brother who is a jerk, the elder brother who would have been his boss, the elder brother who clearly could not stand the younger brother for whatever reason. You see, when the, when the prodigal cuts himself off from the family, he also cuts himself off from his elder brother, Claude. And what we see Claude doing here, you see, this is a story in some ways of, of what the son asks, but then we see what the father does but, and what the older brother does not do. The older brother has all these responsibilities in Middle Eastern culture. And so when the younger brother asks the father for his inheritance, did you notice it says in verse 12, the younger them said to his father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, the father. Did. So the older brother knew what happened. He knew the whole story because father divided things. He got his third and apparently he decided to stay and not, not sell his things. And yet um, he did nothing. He said nothing. You see, the older brother's responsibility in this situation would have been to mediate. He would have been expected to mediate because the younger son doing this to the father would have been humiliating to the father, or at least it would have been shameful to the father in the face of the, the village, in the face of his peers. He, the father, when the younger son asked for his portion of the inheritance, all those around them that knew, and the whole village would have known in very short order, they would have expected the father to punish the son. They would expect the father to, to shame the son. And they would have expected the father maybe to disown the son and say, okay, you can leave, but you get nothing. And you are not my son anymore. They would have shunned him. He just had to go. And yet the father doesn't do that. You see, if the father disowns him, there's no chance at reconciliation. The father doesn't. The middle brother would have been expected to pursue, or the older brother would have been expected to pursue the younger brother and try to mediate between him and the father in order to save face. Even if the older brother hated the younger brother, if he loved his father, he would have gone after the younger brother to help his father save face in front of all the villagers. He doesn't. Because you know what? The older brother doesn't like the father either. In fact, he hates the father, I think. Um, and I've, as I mentioned before, um, I think he's probably the reason that the younger brother left. I mean, why would, why would he stay and live with someone like that? And, and the last thing is just the older brother, what's amazing in this whole passage is that the older brother is silent while all this is going on. 
In other words, you would have expected him, if he cared about his brother at all, to, to pursue him and beg him to come back just on the merit, uh, on his own, for his own sake. He doesn't. And so he, he doesn't say anything. So what, is, what do we hear from the older brother? Crickets. Now, there is an interesting application here, I think. You know, I know a lot of people who don't go to church. I know a lot of people who used to go to church and don't go to church anymore. And the reason they don't is because of Pharisees in the church, oftentimes. Awful people who treat them judgmentally, who don't treat them with grace. Now, sometimes it's just their issues. I mean, a lot of times it is. But sometimes it's true. You know, I, the seminary professor at Covenant College, Jaron Bars, once said that he that most non-Christians think that Christians hate them. Now, whether I, I don't think that's true necessarily that Christians hate them, but I could see how they think that, partly from their own issues, but partly because of the way the church uh, conducts itself in the world. What if our church, what if all churches conducted themselves in such, like the Father in this parable, that we're welcoming and gracious and expect, there, there are standards we'll see later. There are responsibilities to, to being part of the body, being part of the family, and yet the doorway is grace. So the, the older son here, silent, crickets from him. So what happens next? It says, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So that verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. The, the word Greek there is basically liquid, it's liquidated. In, in other words, he didn't take the family's assets and say, I'm just going to sit on these and see my investments grow. He took them all and liquidated them into cash. He went into a far country and he squandered everything he had, his property and reckless living. Now, he was Middle Eastern. He probably did it having parties for people and showing hospitality. But nonetheless, it was reckless. And so he went, it says, and hired, there was a famine, right? Things keep getting worse. COVID happens, right? <laughs> he gets locked down and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. So that tells us a couple things. One, this is a Gentile. He went to live with Gentiles. Number two, it's the guy who hired him didn't like him because the guy who hired him had to know he was Jewish. And if he wanted to get rid of him, he would send him to work with pigs. Simple as that. It's like I used to work for a company. If they want to get rid of you, they say you to drive in school for six weeks because they knew that you would not want to do that. And so they hired him out to feed pigs and he was longing to be fed with the pod. No one would give him anything. So no one liked him. No one wanted him there. He was now working with pigs. He, he had gotten basically to rock bottom. And it says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, <laughs> it says when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and, and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, this is interesting because it says that when he came to himself or when he wised up or, or when he got a clue, he realized that his father's servants had it better than him. And these aren't slaves, by the way. These are people that are like craftsmen, people who work for his father. 
they have, they, at least they have bread to eat. And so what does he say? He, it says he comes to his senses. That's not repentance. He doesn't say I've sinned against heaven and you. And, and it, he says, here's what I need to say to make all this happen. In other words, he hatches a scheme and the scheme is basically, I'm going to go back. I'm going to say all of the right things. I'm going to try and get a job somewhere in the vicinity for one of my father's people. And I will pay him back. And if I pay him back, maybe I will be able to be restored. In other words, they would have, they would have expected him to pay back anything. If he went to a, to a Gentile country, squandered his inheritance and came back, um, that he would have been expected to pay back everything in order to be restored to the family or restored to the village to, to have his honor restored. In other words, his plan is to go back to say the right things and to work really hard. Now, one of the problems that he has to, to face, and it shows you how low he's gotten, is the village, right? Because the village, the, the, there was particular things in Jewish tradition that if a son took his inheritance and went and squandered it and came back, and the village saw him coming back, they would take a pot, apparently. And as he was coming back, someone would take a pot and slam it down in front of the son and say, Kizaza, <laughs> which basically says that you that, that Eugene, who has come back from the Gentile land, is now cut off from his people. What he has done has not only shamed his father, but it has shamed all of us. And we as a village are going to have none of it. And so they break a pot, shout Kizaza, and banish him again. So I don't know how he plans on getting through that gauntlet. And yet he's going to face it. Maybe he's going to try and sneak in. Maybe he's going to try and, you know, he sort of snuck out. He didn't publicly go in front of the village and say, I am disowning my father. He did it sort of like on the, you know, with his father and they would have found out. And so he has to, to see what's going to happen with them. He faces the wrath and the humiliation of the village when he comes back. And basically he wants to come back and he expects to be a servant. But what he doesn't get and what he has never gotten is the fact that his father wants a son, not a servant. In, in other words, in all of that we've talked about so far, Eugene has not broken a law. Eugene has broken relationship with the Father. And you and I have the same problem. The problem with that, that you and I have with God in and of ourselves is not that we are lawbreakers. That is, that's a problem. But our lawbreaking is simply a symptom of the fact that the relationship between us and God has been broken. And is there any way to restore it? Yes. That's where the, the passage goes next. So notice in verse 19, he's going to, Eugene is going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So what has the father done here? The father, Eugene would have gone back to town. He would have been expecting shame. He would have been expecting humiliation. He would have been expecting some kind of punishment. He would have been expecting that his father was like maybe at home and he would have heard that Eugene was there and his father might've said, I will see you next Thursday. And he had been really standoffish about it in order to just make him humiliated. And of course he had the, well, who knows what the village is gonna do to him if they found out that he has squandered his inheritance. And something that defies all expectation happens is the father sees him a long way off. What that means is his father sees him before he gets into the village. His father is anticipating what might happen if he walks into the village and the villagers start to shame him and the villagers start to, to humiliate him. 
And it says, what does he do? He, he, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, if you have listened to my sermon on Zacchaeus, there's one thing that a Middle Eastern man doesn't do, especially a Middle Eastern father, a head of a household do. He doesn't run. He, doesn't, he, he just doesn't. Especially, he doesn't run through a whole town because they, they, they would have worn robes. And so that means he would have had to bend over and hike up his robes between his legs. And I'm guessing if your legs are always covered with a robe, they look pretty bony and white. And so he's got these, these white gangly legs. He's got his robe hiked up around his waist and he is running through town. And certainly as he is running through town, no doubt kids saw him and they started following. What's this guy doing? Why is he running through town? Why is he humiliating himself? Why is he shaming himself? Well, he is shaming himself so that Eugene does not have to be shamed. He is humiliating himself so that Eugene doesn't have to bear that humiliation. You see, what, what saves Eugene is the fact that the father was willing to take on his shame. He was willing to take on his humiliation so that Eugene could be found, so that Eugene could be reconciled to the father. You know, this passage always reminds me of Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire is one of those movies, it's like, you know, I'm not a big fan of romantic comedies, and Jerry Maguire did a great job of, of, of wedding a sports movie to a romantic movie. If you remember, it's, it's, it's Tom Cruise and um, Renee Zellweger, and basically they have gotten to a point in their marriage, they get married in this movie, and at some point they, they, they get crossways and they're thinking about divorcing, they're thinking about leaving, and he experiences this great victory. He's a, he's a sports agent. And he realizes like how much he loves his wife while he's watching these football players celebrate. And so he gets, he runs through the stadium and he runs home. And he, he when he gets to his own house, his wife's sister-in-law, who is a bitter divorcee, is hosting a meeting of other bitter divorcees. And they're sitting around talking about how horrible men are. And so Tom Cruise comes in the room and while he's, he, he walks in and everyone's like, <gasps> and she, of course, is standing there like, what do you want? And he basically says, I want my wife. And he goes on this great um, speech he gives and how she completes him and all of these things. And at some point she just says, shut up. And he goes, what? And she, remember she, her line? She says, you have me at hello. You have me at hello. And he runs over and they embrace, and I don't cry. Um, but you get the idea. Like, the, he came expecting to just, like, persuade her of how much she needs him or how much he wants her. And she's like, you know what? All I needed was for you to come home. And you had me at hello. That's all the father wanted. The father wanted a relationship with Eugene, and he was willing to do anything it took to restore that relationship, even if it meant he had to bear shame, even if it meant he had to be humiliated. And, right, and that's at the center of what we call the gospel. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus so longs to have a relationship with us, so longs to be reconciled to us, that he is willing to bear our shame. He is willing to bear our humiliation. There is no amount of prodigality. There's no amount of sin that you have been able to commit that makes you unlovable to Jesus. What does he expect from you? Let him find you. Let him find you. Come home. Because you know what he'd say? You, you had me at hello. You see, Eugene has come in. Notice what the father does. He, he, Eugene doesn't even get to finish his speech. I don't think he wants to finish his speech. I think he's like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> he says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned before heaven 
And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. You see what happened there, right? The exact same thing that happened with the shepherd who found a sheep and the woman who found a coin, gather people together and rejoice with me because that which is lost is found. And even here, he says that my son who is dead is now alive. He has experienced resurrection, if you will. And it's interesting because he says, put, put, the, put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. What that says is that Eugene has not only been willing to be found, but he is also now as a result of being found, he is realizing that being a son means responsibility to wear the robe, to wear a ring with the family crest on it, even to wear shoes would have denoted that he was now part of the family again. And once the father had made him part of the family again, no one's gonna say anything, it's, it's over. And not only that, but that means he will have some responsibilities in running the, the family business, which of course now belongs to, to Claude. How's that gonna go over? Not very well, I'm afraid. Notice what happens. In verse 25, it says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Okay, so here's where we see that there is also hope for the Pharisee. It might not seem like it, but it is, trust me. Um, and also what you're going to see in this particular part of this story is that everything Claude does also defies expectations, at least in the Middle East. So the older son was in the field and he came and he drew near the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so imagine this. You know, the, the younger, the older brother comes out from the field working and you know what, they were apparently a relatively wealthy family. So the older brother probably wasn't out there like busting his hump. The older brother was probably out in the field supervising other people. So it ain't like he was killing himself probably. He comes back and he sees a party happening at his house. And in the Middle East, the person who was responsible to be the chief servant or the head waiter at parties would have been the oldest son. In other words, it would be like telling your guests um, that you are so important to us that we are going to, to make our son, our oldest son, be one of the servants. Now, the difference is the oldest son, as he was serving people like the servants would, he would banter with them and he would talk with them and he you know, chatted up. Servants wouldn't do that. The older son, but that was his responsibility. So if he came home and saw that there was a party happening at his house with singing and dancing, he would have run. He would have run to the house and said, how did I miss this? 
I'm, I'm shirking all my responsibilities. I need to go get a shower. I need to get a shave. I'll be right there so I can help host and serve this party. Instead, he's suspicious and he's sneaky. He calls, you know, we imagine like one, a little boy being around, like watching around the edges. He calls him over and says, hey, what's going on in there? What do these things mean? And it's, the servant says, or the boy says, your brother has come back and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him safe and sound. Now, received him safe and sound is a little bit misleading there. And it doesn't explain what comes next. Because, because the word there is peace, and, it, and it's the Greek analog to the word shalom. In other words, your brother has come back, and there has been reconciliation. Things are the way they are supposed to be, and there's a big party because of it. And that's why it says in verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. In, in other words, what is the father doing here? The father is doing the exact same thing that, G, that the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing. That what, what Jesus did was he received sinners and he ate with them. What is the father doing? He's received a sinner and he is now eating with him. And the older brother, much like the Pharisees, the elders, uh, they were angry about it. And so what, does, what happens next is basically notice it says that he refused to go in. He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So what is the hope for the Pharisee? So what Claude has done here, what the elder brother has done here, is actually worse than what Eugene did, the prodigal. In other words, what the prodigal did was he asked the father for his money in private, took the money, went off to a foreign land, squandered it, and then came back and was reconciled. Claude, however, is making this public statement he is expected to go in and to be the father's right-hand man, to be the chief servant here, to do all of these things. That is what is expected of him. And he instead refuses to go in. He just stays outside. And that would have been an insult to the father. It would have been shameful to the whole family. And worse, worse than anything else, it would have been awkward and shameful for their guests. I mean, it would have been awkward. It would have been horrible. I mean, all the guests would have been like, Ooh, you know, like, what are we supposed to do now? Um, because what they would have expected was the father to just explode and the father to start yelling and the father to go out and remand this, his son and to punish him and to shame him and humiliate him. Or they would have expected the father to completely ignore him, to treat him as if he was dead. What does the father do? The father does for the older son the same thing that he does for the younger son. He takes the humiliation and the shame and the punishment that the older son deserves onto himself. He humiliates himself. The father, his father came out and entreated him. How weak, right? How horrible. Can you imagine if you're a Middle Eastern patriarch and you see this guy actually going out and entreating this, this obstinate son to come in and just do what's expected of him? And yet the father goes and does that. The father pursues the elder son, just like he pursues the younger son. And in both cases, it costs him. It costs him his pride. It costs him humiliation. It costs him shame. But he is more than willing to do it in order to be reconciled to his sons. And, you know, the, the, the way that the son, that the Claude answers, he's answered his father, 
um, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And yet, but when this son of yours came, notice how alienated the, the Claude is, that when he conceives of what it would be like to celebrate, he thinks if I had just a little goat with my friends, it would be better than having a fattened calf with my whole family and the whole village. And he doesn't say when this brother of mine came or when our brother came, he says this, when this son of yours came, who has devoured everything, he's he, as a Pharisee, which he is, he is more concerned with the sins of the prodigal than he is with his own broken relationship. And he doesn't have any idea how lost he is. And the father comes back one more time. He says, son, you are always with me and all that you have is mine. All that I have is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and now is alive. He was lost and he was found. You see that basically the father shows the same love on the same day in the same way to each brother. Why? Because both need the gospel. The, 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 the way that God reconciles prodigals to himself and the way he reconciles Pharisees to himself is by taking on the shame of the prodigal and the shame of the Pharisee. The punishment that the prodigal deserves and the pro punishment that the Pharisee deserves onto himself. And in exchange for that at the cross, Jesus gives us, he takes the, the pride and the self-righteousness of the Pharisee and the prodigality of the, of the prodigal and he gives in exchange his righteousness. That's what the gospel is all about. You see, Jesus, remember at the beginning, it said Jesus heard the Pharisees grumbling about him as reception of tax collectors and sinners. It says, so he told them this parable. You guys want to know why I eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here's why. I came to seek and save that which is lost. I came to bear their shame, to bear your shame, if you only would. You see, what's interesting is that this story um, doesn't really end. We don't know what Claude did. And I think Jesus leaves it open-ended on purpose for the, for the sake of the Pharisees that are listening. What are you guys gonna do? You can join us in the party or you can stay outside and be angry, but you can't do nothing. What's it gonna be? Think about that. Let me close by reading how the Jesus Storybook ends this. The Jesus Storybook Bible doesn't even mention the older brother, which, you know, that was their choice, but. I like the way she did and what she wrote. It says, and Jesus told people this story of the prodigal son to show them what God is like and to show them what they are like. So they could know however far they ran, however well they hid, however lost they were, it wouldn't matter because God's children could never run too far or be too lost for God to find them. Amen and amen. If you would like to talk to someone about what it means to trust Jesus, what it means to be found, what it means to become a Christian, um, please contact us. Contact us right uh, hello at newhopekent.org and whoever you address that to, we'll make sure gets it. I would love to talk to you as well. So I thought I would end today with a profession of faith. You see that in church, at least at the beginning of church, we confess our sins after God has initiated with us and we profess our faith toward the end of the service. And so today's profession of faith comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the question is, what is adoption? Right? And at least in Reformed Presbyterian circles, we have this doctrine called adoption. And it doesn't get a lot of airtime, but it should. So the question 74 says, what is adoption? 
Answer, adoption is an act of God's free grace in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, by which all of those who are justified become his children, have his name put on them, have the spirit of his son given to them, are provided for under his fatherly care, are welcomed to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, and are made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. Amen. That if, you, if and when you trust Jesus, you are not only justified, made right with God, you're not only uh, start this process of sanctification, but you are made part of his family, one in which he will never kick you out of. Think about that. Let me send you from this place with a virtual benediction. I guess benediction's real, but your experience of it is virtual. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Have a great week.